So we're going to continue in the a study of the book of Mark that we've been doing for several weeks now. I really debated, I know I told you all that we were going to maybe stop, you know, for holidays and stuff. And I was originally thinking we would stop for Thanksgiving and then decided to kind of integrate these next two. I don't know if you really are worried too much about that, but, you know, I try to explain where we're heading and stuff. Uh, we'll be doing two more weeks of Mark, then we're going to head into uh, Christmas series and then uh, it'll be next year which is crazy I can't believe that's true but that's what's going on so we'll hit back into Mark at the beginning of next year so that is our plan we've been talking through the gospel of Mark line by line verse by verse and I hope you've been following along I hope that maybe you're in a family group or maybe you're at least reading the scriptures for yourselves and that you wouldn't just kind of oh that's what he said on Sunday that's nice and then not apply that or really kind of dig in I find that the more we engage with scripture the more we learn. And it's so easy to kind of miss stuff and just cruise right past it. So studying the, the, the Word of God line by line is so helpful in that way. Last week we talked, and I wanted to kind of frame this conversation. I don't know if anybody was in a family group last week or maybe had a, a discussion after church, something about this question. Uh, I was able to attend family group for the first time in a few weeks, which was awesome to be able to hang out just for a minute though, but kind of made our group re-talk because I was, got there pretty late. This idea of, are the apostles just the guys who Jesus originally sent out, or are, are we part of the apostolic uh, tradition? Are we supposed to go out into our world? And what I was really encouraged to hear, and I, don't, I, I just really thought it was something to grapple with, is that the group had kind of thought, yeah, that we're all part of that in our own context. We're all part of Jesus' sending people out into the world. And so that wasn't something I was there to guide that conversation. I just kind of said, hey, what did you guys discover with that? And that's kind of what the, our group was thinking. We, I say that because we, we talked last week about Mark chapter 3 and how we have this kind of moment where Jesus says, I'm going to I'm coming to call you apostles so that I can apostle you and I'm going to send you out and then we don't get to the end of him actually sending them out until Mark chapter 6 which we won't even get to today right so there's this gap in scripture that we're right now talking about and so I want to understand as we enter into the word today that we're entering into what I would call the apostolic training right now you can do all kind of stuff with this text I mean the word of God never returns void you can study it in all different lights but the way I want us to kind of reflect on it is this idea that Jesus had just told these 12 he called to himself I'm going to send you out into the world. And then he begins to immediately teach them some things that I think will be applicable to what it means to be sent out into the world. So we have this moment, and, and then um, in chapter 6, they're sent out. And then even after that, they come back and report, and they kind of follow up, and they decompress with Jesus, and they explain what their experiences were, and he explains the way, why they failed and succeeded in various ways. And so we're going to be talking about that, this apostolic uh, training period and specifically and I think this is why you know the word of God is beautiful and I, I don't try to kind of conform it to anything I hope I know we're all biased in a way toward a certain thing but I really thought is this going to make sense with Thanksgiving and one of the great things about t today's text is it, Jesus calls into question this whole idea of what it means to be family right uh, to be in the family of God. And I think that's a really powerful thing as we look forward into this week of Thanksgiving where we're going to probably hang out with some family that we have, our biological family, maybe our friends and family. And then we have this group of people here at Family Bible Church who we call our church family. And then you probably have friends who are believers in other uh, contexts and, and you would call them your church family as well. And there's all this kind of breadth of our experience and this life. And so I, I believe that Jesus teaches all that. We have a lot to get through today. So I want us to spend some time uh, praying. But before we do, 
Yeah, let's pray, and then we'll read, and I'll just talk through the text this morning. So pray with me, if you would. Father God, we are so grateful to be in your house today. We're so thankful to be gathered here. And I say in your house, Father, I don't mean in this building that you live in, because it's obviously the middle school. It's your people with whom you dwell. Your word says where two or three are gathered, I'm there amongst you. Your word says that you'll never uh, leave us or forsake us. And Father, you, you say that you put your Holy Spirit in us at the point of belief that we might dwell with you. We might oikos, live, have a home with you. And so today, Father, I thank you that we're able to come to your house to worship you together in, as one body of believers. Father, today, for all the stuff that we've been experiencing, and JC made a great point earlier, Father, this year to reflect on, you know, these are these times that we begin to think about the year behind, the year ahead, that we would always uh, be reflecting on your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your sustaining power, your presence, your love, your dedication, your devotion to us um, that we do not deserve, but yet you pour lavishly upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and a sacrifice on the cross through the Spirit that dwells in us, that compels us to move forward in faith, and through your great love for your people, your children. Today, Father, as we come into your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would instruct us, that we would um, sit resolutely at your feet, and we would listen to your word, and we would allow it to challenge the things that we assume to be true as we follow you together. May this not be a movement of man. May it not be a movement of man. Any one man or all men may be a movement for the glory and the power of you, of God. May it be for your glory, the good of your people. We love you so much. We thank you for your word that is so powerful. We pray that today we would have eyes to see and ears to hear um, and a heart to believe and be transformed. We love you so much and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. If you brought a Bible today, you can probably find Mark 3. If you didn't, you can grab one of ours. I think it's on page 701-ish. Probably still there in 701 because we're going line by line. Mark 3, 21, or 20 through 34, I think is what we're going to cover today. And so I want to read it all, I, I, you know, kind of do this, and then we're going to talk through it. That just gives us a feeling for where we've been and, and wh where we are right now. This is what the word says. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Uh, when his family heard about this, they went, went to take charge of him because they said he is out of his mind. And the teacher of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. 31. Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So th this is this interesting interaction we have right after Jesus says, I'm going to make you apostles and send you out. 
And I want to kind of create the context and give us a little bit of a reminder of what that should kind of bring to mind for us, right? The word says right away that then Jesus entered a house, actually, and again a crowd gathered. Uh, That should remind us of the times that Jesus has already entered houses in Mark chapter 2, just one chapter before. We just studied that a few weeks ago, right? And this idea that the crowds were drawn to Jesus, it should remind us that again, this ministry of Jesus continues to endure as one where sinners eat with Jesus. They draw near with Jesus. They crowd in. That's one thing it should remind us of, that his house ministry hasn't stopped. But the other thing that it should remind us of, I think, is it should remind us of the fact that the last time he was in a house and people were drawing near and packing in like this, he had forgiven the sins of a paralyzed man. And I say to you, forgiven the sins of a paralyzed man, because many of you say, well, he healed a paralyzed man. He did heal a paralyzed man, but he only healed him after he forgave his sins to prove that he could forgive sins. See, many of us, that's the miracle is that he, for, that he healed them, but the miracle is that he forgives sins. That's the miracle. And we're going to hear that again today. That this, that this great gospel of Jesus. And so here we have him in a oikos, in a house again, and the crowds are pressing in. And there's one interesting detail that's a little different. The word says that they pressed in so much so that they were not able to eat. And I thought, well, that's crazy, right? I mean, we had the guy who was lowered through the roof because they couldn't get people to heal him, to him to be healed anymore. But now they actually have um, so much draw, so much you know, just like need to get to Jesus that people can't even eat anymore. So when I was looking at this, I was surprised. Actually, what it says is they could no longer take bread. They could no longer, now, now I read that when I thought, well, they couldn't eat. I thought he meant they were so busy, so many people that Jesus couldn't stop to have a meal. I know many of you are going to have like Thanksgiving uh, this week and you're going to sit with family. And maybe some of you have a tradition where you like sit around a table. But for many of us, it becomes kind of a finger food experience or at least the enduring bounty, doesn't it? I mean, in other words, you might have a formal meal where you gather and you, let's say the Lord's, you pray and then you, you know, cut the turkey. You might do that anymore, cut the turkey or open the turkey if you're that, if you're like me, you know, I would not be cutting any turkey, but um, unless Chris cooks it, you know. Then it becomes this kind of enduring meal where, you know what I'm saying, like the football's on, you're hanging out and you're like, I need a snack and you walk back into the kitchen, you cruise in, you're like, oh, that's Can you imagine if the house that you're going to be in was so packed you couldn't get back to the food? Like, that seems crazy to me. That seems crazy to me. And that could be very well what they're saying here. It could be that Jesus and his disciples, his apostles, those he's about to apostle, were were so packed in and so, that's possible, they couldn't get to food. You know what else I thought, perhaps, is that there were so many people gathered and there were so many sinners breaking bread with Jesus that they were running out. Because it's funny to me that in the Greek it says that they were no longer to eat bre- they're no longer able to eat bread. It, it, it's kind of lost in translation. Because if you think about how much room, I just want to check practically. Now we're going to have communion later on. Can you imagine, we could have this room like full enough that some of you who are close probably would go crazy, right? And you could still break bread. You could still eat if you just wanted to have a little bread. It doesn't take very much space to eat bread. That's what I'm saying. If you have enough people, you might run out. And it could be that there were so many people pressing into Jesus that they were running out of everything they had. What, what a, by the way, what a wonderful problem to have if our houses were so filled because Jesus was being proclaimed, that the house was so filled that people couldn't even make, you couldn't get in anymore. There was a line outside the venue. People going, I just want to eat with Jesus. I just want to hang out with Jesus. 
And that's exactly the context with which we see this here. Okay, it's a little thing, but I wanted to hit it because I want to remind us of this fact that Jesus eats with sinners and that he had forgiven sins. And so there's this draw. There should be a draw to Jesus. Rightly proclaimed, there should be a draw to Jesus. Who else can forgive our sins? So he and his disciples were able to eat. Now, verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him because they said he's lost his mind, okay? So when his family hears about these house gatherings and he's eating with sinners and there's religious controversy, I'm, I want to talk about this idea of family here because I think it's worthy talking about. The word actually says those who belong to Jesus. You and I might think of family as, you know, later on he defines it, you know, my, uh, my brother, my sister, my mother. That's how he defines family. But here the, the word is those who belong to Jesus. When those who belong to Jesus, and you know, that's funny because all of us come out of a, a context of our homes right we belong to people like we've talked about this i won't re-talk about it but you know god has sovereignly placed us in our families for a purpose like you can just believe it was a primordial accident that you're born into your family or you can believe that god sovereignly chose you and that's what the scriptures say that god sovereignly chose to place you in your home of origin which might be really good for some of you and it might be really bad for some of you right you might go why would god put any child there very hard thing to talk about but very relevant but here in this moment it says that those who belong to Jesus or those whom believe Jesus belongs to so this familiarity it's funny isn't it family the familiar and they've known Jesus his whole life and when they hear what's happening with Jesus they have no this is gonna be the problem we have they have no construct to understand it they have no framework to process what they're seeing of the Jesus they've always known and so their conclusion he's lost his mind I just want to say that for a minute and sit on that for a minute because I think it's easy to go right past it into the story of the teacher of the law and that's fair but you know how what would it be like to have been raised in a home loved cared for I mean, they actually went all the way back to Jerusalem to get their son when they left him. <laughs> you know, he's 12. And, and to have those who love you the most say, he's out of his mind. He's lost it. I think there's something there that's, that's powerful and that's true about our experience in, in coming to belong to Jesus. The word says that he was, they believed he was beside himself, right? He was standing, literally it means standing outside of yourself which is kind of hard to do. You, you, you displaced who you truly are. And matter of fact, they were so sure that he had lost his mind, they didn't just sit at home and go, oh, Jesus has lost his mind, right? They're like, get your brother, get your sisters, we're going to bring Jesus home. That's what they said. I want us to think about that for a minute. They believed so much that he had lost his mind, they got a posse from the family to show up at the house that was going to be packed with people they didn't know to grab Jesus and to drag him out. The word means to seize him. It's the same word that's used later when Jesus is betrayed to the authorities and he's seized by the Roman guards. It's the same word that's used whenever Judas betrays him with a kiss. His family is so concerned he's lost his mind that they want to control him. Let's get him under control again. Let's, let's bring him back into the house because they're unsure. They have no context for what he's doing what's happening in Jesus's life I think that's powerful so that's one thing is that those who belong to him think they've lost his he's lost his mind she's lost her mind I, I have no context to understand what they're referring to here 
But then the second thing, and this is the bigger part of our text today, it says, and the teachers of the law, and I think these things are related, right? And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, so these guys have cruised down to see what Jesus is up to. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's casting out demons. Their pr problem is from a religious perspective. They've already been offended enough, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But now they're like, there's something broken in what he's doing. By the way, he's casting out demons. Like, I can't... I, it's hard to imagine, like whatever you think about the spiritual life, whatever you think about uh, oppression and um, brokenness and demons or, or spirits, like whatever your context is, I can't imagine the mindset required to say that people who've been set free is a bad thing on religious purposes. Like that's really what's happening here. They studied the book, they understand the rules, and they say, I don't care how good what's happening is, it can't be of God. They've decided, and, and they come down to, this, to, to kind of judge Jesus in this way, proclaiming perhaps the most damning thing they could say to a man of God. He is working by the power of the enemy. That's the accusation. So the first is the family comes, and the second is the religious people show up and begin to accuse him of serving the prince of demons to cast out demons. But they specifically say one thing, and I want to just... For a minute, we talked about Beelzebub before, but Beelzebub, we talked about this, is Baal-zebub. It's two words, right? It comes from the Hebrew, Baal-zebub. You should remember Baal from the Old Testament, right? It was the false god, the Phoenician god. They would sacrifice, they would put up altars and poles, and God was deeply offended when people would worship a false god. He would not tolerate that thing. And so here, they refer to the God that Jesus, who says, I am the Son, and He is the Father, and the Spirit is in me, right? That they are saying He is serving by the one who is set absolutely against the true God. Beelzebub. Beelzebub, this is a weird kind of cultural thing. You can translate that as Lord of the Flies. That has some cultural significance to us. How many of you remember Lord of the Flies? It's like a super trippy book, movie thing. About kids who like rule over each other or whatever you know it gets super weird super fast <laughs> and you go gosh it looks like us <laughs> when you watch read that oh this looks like us it, it was a derogatory term and it meant the dung god um god of the poop that's what it meant but you didn't think you heard it in church today right that's what they said you're not serving the true god you're serving god of the poop because flies gathered there that's what it meant and it was the most insulting. It was God of the filth. God of the disgusting. God of the repulsive. Beelzebub. That's who you're serving. Beelzebub. And Jesus rightly, we might go, yeah, what's the big deal? They're haters, right? Haters gonna hate. Here's what it says. Jesus rightly understands this and he begins to teach them in parables. By the way, they could not explain this either. They had no context for understanding one who taught with authority. And so they brought these outlandish accusations against Jesus. Check it out, verse 23. So, because he did this, Jesus drew them to himself, which I, I love that, right? No matter how insulting, no matter how offensive, no matter how uh, determined to undermine the work of Christ, Jesus draws them to himself and begins to teach them, to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? That's his first question. You want to accuse me of working for the enemy of God? How does the enemy of God work against the enemy of God? How is that even possible? And he begins to lay out a few parables that I, I think we should kind of lay side by side and talk through a little bit and what it means for the ministry that Jesus is doing. 
First of all, parables, so there's lots of like fun Greek happening. I won't bore you with all of it, but there's this idea. He's been ekbaloing. He's been casting out demons. It means to take and throw them out, right? He gets them, he throws them out. That's what he does. It's like he's ekbaloing. But the word uh, parable means he's paraboloing. It means he's going to throw some things down next to each other, line them up and say, now look at the difference, look at the similarities. Do you understand what I'm doing here? A parable is something that doesn't speak directly to an issue, but it lines them up side by side, kind of like parallel lines, so you can see which one's bent. Or which one's straight, right? A parable. It lines some things up. And so he very quickly, is really rapid fire here, he says, he asks this kind of arching question, how can Satan drive out Satan? First, and, and uh, let me just say this, you have to see immediately here that Jesus believes that fundamentally the work that he's doing is against Satan. You see, they've kind of said Beelzebub, they've kind of said prince of demons. They've kind of alluded to the spiritual battle that Jesus is in. But he in no uncertain terms says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Which implies that what he is doing when he eats with sinners, breaks bread, heals people, and casts out evil spirits is he's battling Satan, the enemy of God. Not some minor kind of pet project God, some little soft, but the one who stands against God. And he asked that question, so he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? It's this context. And then very quickly he rolls through here and he says, if a kingdom's divided against itself, it can't stand. First parable, right? Second one, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And then the third one, and if Satan opposes himself and he is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, Satan would have no interest in setting sinners free. Satan would have no interest in healing people. Satan would have no interest in driving out his own minions because it would undermine his authority, his kingdom, his dominion. And so not only do we see that Jesus understands his own ministry as a work directly against the enemy of God, but he sees his work entering into the houses of sinners, breaking bread with them, healing, casting out as kingdom work. And you might say, well, yeah, I've been in church for a while, Bill, I get it, kingdom work. I understand what kingdom, I know the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, I understand that. But I don't know that we really do understand that what Jesus is saying, these simple acts, this act of loving people, this act of inviting people, this act of letting people eat with him, is kingdom work. It's authority work. And it's not just kingdom work because it's about Jesus' kingdom, about his Father's kingdom, about the coming kingdom, but it's kingdom work because he is currently on enemy territory. Right? He's battling for who's going to be Lord. So he these parables, he throws them down. He says, Satan, how can Satan be divided against Satan? A kingdom against itself cannot stand. So he's saying, I'm for a kingdom. There's another kingdom. And the kingdoms are at war. We're battling each other. And then he one-ups it again and, and, and kind of shrinks the context. And he says, an oikos, a household. The house is full, isn't it? The house is full where Jesus is hanging out. And he says, a house divided against itself can't stand. A household, let alone a kingdom. We've heard that quoted before probably. A kingdom uh, divided cannot stand. What about a household? Can a household divided stand? Jesus says no. And then he goes back to his original point. Therefore, Satan is casting out Satan. Satan can't stand. Funny contact, con connection here. Jesus says, 
What I want is a kingdom to stand. What I want is a household to stand and stand together. And what his family saw was a man who couldn't stand in his own body anymore. That's what they thought. He's out of his mind. He can't stand. And Jesus is like the exact opposite is what's happening. This is a kingdom standing. This is a household standing. This is the good work of God in the house. This is the good work of God in the kingdom. This is the good eternal work that God is doing. This is the spiritual battle between God and Satan. You see that? He turns that around and he gives them some way to understand the work he's doing. And not only that, he immediately uh, uh, kind of undermines their own ability to question what he's doing. A kingdom against itself cannot stand. Okay, so we're going to stop there for a minute. We're going to come back, but we're going to stop there for a minute. And, and I just want to kind of apply uh, this. So this idea that we, when we enter into these simple things and they feel so complicated, it's because they are, right? In other words, this work that we do and the apostles are going to do when they're sent out is going to seem so simple. Just go out there, hang out with some people, right? Don't take anything with you. And, then, and it's a really, really hard experience for them. Because it's kingdom battle. It's a household divided amongst itself. So anyway, so we kind of have that laid out. All right. He then turns to another parable. He says this. In fact, no one, we've talked about this before, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he can rob his house. And I want to kind of, this is a hard one to get at a little bit, but I want to try to kind of get there. I want us to see this very practically, what Jesus is doing. He's entering into someone's house. Again, he's in the house. Again, sinners have gathered there. Again, they're all friends. They're all family, right? You, you heard the list of the apostles. They're like related. And in that context, he begins to cast out demons. And there's one way we can look at this and we can, he says, again, no one can enter a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man, right? And so you can say, man, Jesus has walked into the household of Satan. He's walked into the uh, kingdom of Satan and he's begun to cast out demons as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact. Which means that he has indeed bound Satan in that moment, in that house. And I think... Uh, it's hard, I mean, honestly, it's hard for me to get my head around that, right? That it's not when we enter into the spiritual battle, when Jesus comes to that spiritual battle, it's not as if we're neutral parties. It's not as if it's like, well, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. I don't know who's in charge of my life. And then Jesus comes in and claims dominion and authority. And it's like, we were like, well, we were kind of neutral before, but now we're on Jesus' team, right? He claimed us, he, he wrestled us, he, he got us, he changed our hearts, put a spirit inside. But, but there's a teaching here that says, no, when he enters a house, the house is bound by Satan, the house is bound over to the Lord of the air, the, the Lord of this earth, the one that wants to rule and have dominion over, dominion over people, uh, oppress them and break them, convince them of lies. And Jesus says, no one can come in and do the work I'm doing unless he first binds the strong man. Not only am I casting out demons, right, but I've bound Satan. That's one way to look at it. Here, here's, here's the other way, and we talked about this. But this is God's house, right? And this is God's house where the enemy acts like he's the strong man. And he's putting little strings around people's wrists, right? He's putting little, little threads around people. And he's going, you can't move. I got you. I got you. And, and, and Jesus walks in as the strong man. He's like, I can't be bound. You can't stop this. 
You can't stop me. You can't stop this movement. And his family who sees him his whole life, and they go, I don't know, he's lost his mind. Let's go get him. Let's bring him back under control. He's like, you can't control this. And the religious leaders who are like, we've been doing this for thousands of years this way. This can't change. He's like, you can't stop this. This is the work of God. This is an eternal battle. And he can't be bound. So we have both of those kind of things happening at once here in this teaching where he says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And there's a spiritual battle. And then he will rob his house. He will rob his house. All right. One thing of application, then we're going to move into this next idea in the text. Every household will have a Lord. This one hit me like, like that when I was looking at it this week. Every household will have a ruler. Every one. The question isn't, will we have a ruler? Because I think we live in a culture right now, and you, you know, in the United States, where we say nobody rules over us. You know, like, like we're down with everyone over us. No one has authority over us. But the truth is, what Scripture teaches, what Jesus teaches here, is that every oikos, every household will have an authority, will have a ruler over it. The question is who? And in the same way, if you back it up, every kingdom will have a ruler. And the question is who? You hear all kind of crazy stuff right now, right? After the elections, people are saying, we shouldn't have anyone telling us what we should, we should be able to do whatever we want. No, you will be ruled by someone. The question is who? That's the question. Every kingdom will have a ruler. Who? And Jesus brings it back to that huge context of the spiritual battle, the truth of a God who made us and created us and loves us and sent us on to die for us as being the strong man who wants to set us free and the liar who whispers, the adversary who binds us falsely in hopes that we would never believe, never partake, never participate in the kingdom of God because the minute that happens, he has no authority over us. The enemy of God. What God does. And I feel that. I feel that in day-to-day life in my house. Who will rule over my household? Will it be me? Will it be my wife? Will it be our kids? Or will it be the Lord? Who, who's going to be the truth teller? The God who made us or the liar, the adversary? The kingdom is the same way. The question is who will rule? And Jesus then goes on 28 i'll tell you the truth i love this man all sins and blasphemies men blaspheme will be forgiven if they blaspheme let's just stop there for a minute jesus says something crazy he said all sin and all blasphemy will be forgiven if they blaspheme that's the first part We get to the second part. We'll get there in a minute in 29. But that's just a crazy thing he just said. Everything you've ever done will be forgiven. Every evil word you spoke against someone will be forgiven. Then 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He is guilty of a sin for the ages. And he points out something that's at the root of what's happened here. That's at the root of what's happened here. And I will say both with his family and with the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. He said, you have fundamentally misunderstood what God is doing. 
And when you speak so boldly against that, I'm going to go lay hold of Jesus. You're doing this by the power of Satan. You can't, you can't cast out demons. You're using demons. You're trickery. It's all witchcraft. He's like, you are blaspheming the very work of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, when you say that. You are blaspheming God himself, calling God a liar, and you a truth teller. You're elevating yourself beyond your circumstance. And he says, oh yeah, all the sin against brothers and sisters, all the sin, it will be forgiven. But not blaspheming God. No. Not calling God a liar. That won't be forgiven you kind of go, man, that's messed up. This has a lot of people tripped up because they're like, oh, you know, did I've, maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin, right? I say this to everybody I talk to on this issue right here. If you're still sucking wind, you haven't, you have not forever committed the unforgivable sin. You know what I think the unforgivable sin is? I think it's saying God's a liar to your death grave. God's a liar. This Jesus stuff, I don't need it. Savior stuff, I don't need it. I'm good. I'm good. I got this. I'm in charge of my household. I know what's going on. And in that moment, you proclaim a kingdom for yourself that will not stand. Won't stand. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's not in a moment I rejected God. Man, look at Peter, right? Deny Jesus, deny Jesus, deny Jesus. He's forgiven. It's not about some point in your life where you walked away from God or you stopped believing or you struggled to believe. But it's about a willful, persistent desire to thumb your nose at the one who made you, who gave you this life that you don't deserve, who put the breath in your lungs that you didn't draw of your own accord, who placed you in your household when you were in your mother's womb. See, that's the perpetual, that's the eternal sin. Calling God a liar and men tellers of truth. That's crazy. All sin will be forgiven. All blasphemy will be forgiven. By the way, I want to be a little careful. I don't, I don't think, and this isn't me just trying to caveat from my own theology, but I don't think Jesus is saying, no matter what you do, it'll all be forgiven. Just don't talk bad about God. You'll be fine. Because I think that if you don't believe in Jesus, that's what John uh, 3, 16 through 18 says. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the part we know, right? But the rest says that if you are rejecting Jesus Christ, you already deny God. That's, that's what G Jesus is like to these religious teachers. Man, I'm doing the work of God here. And if you don't see it, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you call me a liar, if you say I'm driving out Satan by Satan, you're a liar and, and there's no truth in you. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All right, here we go. So the sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. Here, verse 30. He said this, and here's his whole reason, because they're saying he has an evil spirit, a divisive spirit, not a unifying spirit of God. That's why he said all that. All right, last, last touch here. And this is all connected, right? Because you have this kind of little caveat thing. Been, you know, we're going to go take hold of Jesus, right? 31 says this. This is like meanwhile back at the ranch. <laughs> you know, they've been hanging out in the hall. By the way, they've been hanging out in the whole house the whole time. <laughs> like they've been hanging out with Jesus the whole time this has been happening. Like they still ain't eating no bread. They're still hanging out there. They're, you know, Mary and the brothers and sisters coming to get Jesus the whole time. And they finally show up. It says, just at that moment, Jesus' mother and brothers and sister arrived outside. And they sent someone into the house to call him out. Tell, tell, him, tell him we're out here waiting for him. Could you? That's just hilarious, by the way. If you've ever had that experience, like, I can relate a little bit to what they're thinking here. I pulled up at, like, some parties my kids were at with their friends. There's nothing more frustrating than waiting outside and the house is like crazy with people. Kids, bam, bam, slamming doors, running around. 
it, you know, and you're like, just get them out here. It's midnight. <laughs> Time to go. So that's kind of the experience here. They can't even get in and get to Jesus. They're going to go, we're going to go grab hold of Jesus. They can't even get in there. And they're like, they're like, hey, tell him to get his rear end out here. Right? His mom's here. His brothers are here. His sister's here. Get him out here. And look at the scene, 32. There's a crowd, and they're sitting around Jesus. And they, they relayed the message, gave him a telephone. Your, your mother and brothers and sister are outside looking for you, Jesus. They're waiting outside. And this is his question. I want you to see the similarity here. Who are my mother and my brothers? Right? He, he questions a very fundamental assumption that there's a prioritization in this life that trumps the kingdom. Right? Wait. That trumps the household of faith. See in his answer, he asked the Pharisees, not the Pharisees, the legal scholars, he said, how can Satan drive out Satan? That's the first question he asks. And then he answers the parables. And this question he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Then he began to look around at those who were seated at his feet. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And this is what his kind of final stamp here is. Whoever is doing God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's who. Who has the ability to come in and take charge of me? Right? Those who are doing the will of God. Those who are drawing near. Those who, who dare to believe I haven't lost my mind. I am who I say I am. And I, I say that, and that's a, that's a, tough, that's a tough passage because you go, you know, at the end, I want to remind you at the end, Jesus says, take care of my mother from the cross, right? He, he's not, he don't love his mom. He does. Mom don't get it right now. And Jesus says, there's something that's bigger than what's happening in our, our biological families here. There's some authority that's greater than, than a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, a grandma, a grandpa, who don't get what you're about with Jesus. He says, this is the people who are doing the will of God in their lives. And that does a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it means that anyone can be included in the family of God. Just like he said, all sins will be forgiven, all blasphemy will be forgiven to men. I, anyone who's doing the will of my father is part of the family. And, and then second, it doesn't exclude family. It really doesn't. And I've had that same experience in my life. Where when you get it, you get it. Wow. Okay. This whole time, those people I don't understand, they're doing the will of God. They're obeying God. They're reading God's word. They have the Holy Spirit. Like, I didn't understand it. Now I understand it. Praise God for those who would dare to eat with a sinner like me. So there you go. This idea that whoever does God's will is the brother, the sister, the mother of Jesus. You know, it's funny because Jesus just goes on. You know, it never happens. They never lay hold of him. Rail him in, you know, corral him. They're invited to participate with everybody else. The kingdom of God is bigger than that. I want to share, we've, we've uh, had a lot uh, this morning, different kind of looks and, and stuff, but I want to share with you yeah, from First Thessalonians. Because I love this, man. And sometimes we say, well, it's so, it's so hard to know, you know, like how can I do that practically? What, what do I really, you know, like I want to be, uh, I don't know, like do you want to be in the family of God? You know, like do you want to be included in his kingdom? First thing is you just believe Jesus is who he says he is. Like, yeah, Jesus is in charge. Desire 
Lord, I want you to rule over my household. I want you to rule over my kingdom. I want you to rule over my life. I believe there's a spiritual battle happening. Lord, I want you to be in charge of it. Like those simple prayers, you know, like, God, just, just make my heart right today, you know. Love that prayer that dude says, uh, I believe, help with my unbelief. Help, help get that out of my life. Help me believe more in you. Help me live more in you. Help me test my faith. See, this is all the training for those who are about to be sent out, that they would know these things. Later on, after the apostles are sent out and after the church is established and after the Holy Spirit is present, all these things, we have this book uh, called First Thessalonians. And I just want to share a few verses with you from Thessalonians. I think I put it on the screens as well. We can pop it up here. This is Thessalonians 5. This is a great verse for this week as we think about how can we practically be the people of God. And uh, I love this. And I want to put it all together, right? This is what Paul says. Uh, be joyful always. Pray continually. Like, don't stop praying. And then here it is. And give thanks in every circumstance. Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Like, if you ever want a succinct version of God's will for your life, here it is, right? Like, be joyful, pray, give thanks. And I don't know where you are in your life right now, but I guarantee you this week you can do those three things. You can do those things in Jesus Christ. You can be joyful, you can pray, God, would you help me with this? And you can give thanks in a way that's glorifying to God. God, thank you. Thank you for this. I'm, I'm going to close this in prayer. And um, I'm going to pray for us as we go out. And then uh, we're going to ask the band to come back up and lead a final song, just singing thanks to Jesus. And uh, we'll participate and commune together. Uh, pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for your word that is tried and true, has been handed down faithfully, empowered by your Holy Spirit. Not, not just the words on a page. We don't worship a book, Father. We worship the person that's communicated in your book. We, we worship the person that is kind of called forth in our mind's imagination from the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we admit that we are sinners at the foot of the cross that none are more righteous than the others, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we long to know you more intimately. Now, Father, this week as we uh, continue in our discipleship with you, we continue to learn, we continue in our apostleship being sent out, I pray that we would have a real sense of what you're doing in our lives. That we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, the truth of what's happening. That we would taste and see that you're good. All this stuff comes from your word, Father. Lord, would you help us? And I know <laughs> these holidays, I mean, for some people, Father, we're over the moon. For some people, we just can't wait to be with family. Oh, it's so good to be with family. And for some of us, Father, it's so hard. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain. Father, would you help all of us, no matter our circumstance, be joyful? W would you compel us to pray, to talk to you about what's going on? And to find ways to give thanks. Oh God, we thank you that we're here. I thank you that my friends are gathered here today with us. I thank you that we had this time together in your word. Help us do that work, Father God. And do that work in us and for us when we can't do it ourselves. We pray that as we draw near, we would find the things that the very first sinners who pressed in that house found. Healing and hope and a casting out of the oppressor. And a new kingdom and a new household and a new family. In your name, may you be glorified. We love you so much. Praise to you, Father, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.